Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Bread and Butter. I'm Caroline Kenyon and it's my pleasure that I'm able to invite onto the show all sorts of fascinating people. It can't really have escaped your attention that um, January uh, was Veganuary, growing bigger and bigger, not just in the UK but around the world every year. And it's an enormous pleasure to have on the programme today Sam Calvert, who's Head of Communications at the Vegan Society. Welcome to you, Sam. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. Wonderful. Well, I know that you have a really interesting um, food journey story to, to share with us uh, yourself, actually, Sam. So tell, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. I think um, I gather you actually grew up in Zambia for part of your childhood. Tell us about I, that and what it was like as a sort of uh, a food influence. Yes, I, I lived in Zambia as a child. My, my father um, worked there um, in, in, on the Copper Belt. Um, I lived in Zambia as a child um, between the ages of um, six and 11. And I think it probably did have an impact on, on who I am in, in dietary terms today. Um, I certainly remember um, one, of the, one of the things that was always happening socially was that you would have things like pig on a spit. And I always remember as a child feeling really upset because you could see the animal, you could see the full shape of the animal and it just seemed incredibly sad and it was something I would I would never eat at, at events um, I also remember that um, at, at one point uh, we often had um, food shortages um, uh, politically borders were closed with with other countries where food had traditionally um, traveled to Zambia and um, there were a lot of food shortages around and I remember once going to a slaughterhouse where we, where um, we were collecting chickens dead dead chickens to be um, used at a, an event um, my father was very involved with um, amateur football and they had a fundraising event and there was a lot of catering going on and I went with him to, to collect these and um, I remember it, it wasn't particularly enclosed and you could see all the hens all the chickens hanging upside down by their legs um, going towards you know what I now know would be, would have been the stunning bath you know to be to be stunned before they were slaughtered and then coming at you could see them come out the other side with their with their necks slit um, and, and I remember that being kind of quite a, a very memorable thing I guess I would probably have been eight or nine perhaps um, you know, uh, similarly, I can remember. You know, people would have a few hens in the garden, and they would they would wring their necks. They would that was how they would kill them. 
um, th things like that. I think it, it was a bit more raw and a bit a bit more real than perhaps going to a supermarket and things. There were there were occasions, not frequent occasions, but occasions where I felt kind of up close and personal with the suffering of animals. I certainly know that left to my own devices by the age of eight, I think I would have been vegetarian. I certainly didn't want to eat meat uh, by that stage. Um, it actually took me in the end, I think, until I was about 17 to become vegetarian. Um, but I think once I'd met people who uh, were vegetarians and were, you know, they were alive still, you often get told, you were told in those days that you might not survive um, if you weren't, if you were vegetarian or that you would be unwell, you'd have nutritional uh, deficiencies. Once I'd met people who were happy and healthy as, as a vegetarian, there was no stopping me really and it's, it's something I've never looked back on. That's so fascinating, Sam. I, I mean, what a formative experiences, and I can just imagine how how traumatic it was to see those scenes as a small child. I mean, did you express those feelings to your parents? I th I think I probably just accepted it um, in some ways. I mean, it was certainly upsetting, and and they they certainly knew that. I mean, they knew the pig on the spit example. They knew that. I, I was upset by animals like that and they would often have to take me away from those sorts of events to say, oh, you know, Samantha's very upset by this, we're going home now. Um, but um, I think there was much more of an acceptance that that, that was life. Um, I mean, I certainly remember as a, as a child, I w when I was younger, I would sort of say, so this is, you know, pork. Where does pork come from? Is that an animal? And you'd often be told, no, no, it's not. Just eat it. It's good for you. Um, so I think there, was, there wasn't really the level of engagement you get today where perhaps parents would be much more willing to enter into a discussion and change diets and so on. And I think in fairness to my parents, um, we were living in a society that had food shortages and I was what was seen as a, a picky child, a child that was fussy about what they would eat. I was quite slim. Um, I don't. I can understand that you wouldn't want in that situation to have your child refusing whole categories of food like all meat because it, it would have been difficult. Um, so I, I can understand why why and how it happens. Um, but um, but certainly I think it, it, it had an influence and it, it is one of the things that I think made me perhaps think more about about vegetarianism. Though I'm I'm kind of convinced that some of us are just just built this way. I just feel as though I've always meant to be vegetarian, always meant to be now vegan that it's it's part of who I am. I feel like I was probably born this way. No, I really understand that, Sam. And I think, you know, I think what you say about it was, you know, sort of more upfront and real. I mean, I think there's, there's quite a lot of dishonesty about the way that meat is uh, pervade in our kind of society, that it's, you know, that, that the reality of the production is sort of hidden away and it's all presented in a very sanitised fashion in shops or supermarkets. You know, you, you saw something that was more, more truthful um, and it allowed you to make a decision based on a truthful depiction of what it really is. Yes, and, and I think most children, you know, children are often encouraged to be kind to animals, you know, to, to be nice to companion animal dogs and cats um, and to behave nicely around animals and appropriately. Um, so, so, and we've read, you know, stories um, where where um, animals are, are given um, human characteristics. So we read those stories as children, and they're read to us as children. So I think we're brought up to feel that empathy with animals. However, with another category of animals, we're not meant to feel that empathy. So th this group here are are labelled pets um, or companion animals, and this group here are labelled food. 
and you're not meant to feel the same level of empathy for the food animals because that's their purpose. Or even you're told they wouldn't exist if we didn't eat them. They only exist because we eat them. So the only way they're going to have a life is because you eat them. And of course, that really is disingenuous because we breed animals and um, if people didn't eat them, they simply wouldn't be bred, which isn't quite the same thing as being slaughtered. No, that's, that's very well put. So let's go back to... Um to little Sam growing up. So you were in um, Zambia until you were 11. Then you came to the UK. Yes, that's right. What kind of impact did British food, British school food make on you? I mean, I suppose I had lived in, in England until I was six years of age. Um, and I had come back at, at a couple of points, you know, on holiday, um, stayed with, with family and in, in the UK. So I don't think it, I don't think of, I mean, I think very much our culture in, in Zambia was to eat as much as you were able to get it, the food you would have been eating in England. So I don't think it was greatly different. Um, but I guess, um, I guess I still, I was still uncomfortable about the idea of, of eating animals. That was, that was certainly a, a key factor. Um, as I said, from about the age of eight, I was someone who would, wouldn't, wouldn't have chosen to eat meat. I, I'd understood enough then that um, these products were made from animals that had to be killed for me, and I didn't want to be part of that. But I think I was persuaded into this is this is the way it is, and there isn't really an alternative, and it's not nutritionally sound for you to eat any any differently. By the time I reached um, a secondary school, uh, well, probably more likely sixth form, um, there was someone who was. Um, vegetarian in my school in my 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 year at, at sixth form and I, I realized that this was you know perfectly possible someone else I knew became vegetarian around that time one of my friends and I just decided this was something that I wanted to do um, it, it was it was doable uh, these people were perfectly healthy and I could do that too so I think that was the point where um, I was able to determine my own future in that way and, and and make a change and I was vegetarian then for 10 years I became I became it took me a full 10 years before I became fully vegan so I I can empathize with people who follow you know a journey that takes some time I think at that period most people would have been vegetarian for a number of years before becoming vegan nowadays it's obviously much more common that people become vegan overnight but that was almost unknown I would have said then Yes, that's certainly my observation. My son is vegan, and for him it was a journey. I am not, um, but I have certainly massively reduced well, meat and fish consumption and, 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 and all animal products as a result. He, uh, I think I am on a journey, but it's, it's slow. It's slow, but mm. I, you know, I, I do reflect upon it, well, every day, really. Mm. And I think m many of my friends are doing so. And I'm really interested when you say that you were, you were 17 and at school and there was, you know, somebody in your class who was a vegetarian. And I just remember, it, I mean, now it's just so common. I mean, I'm, I, th I think I'm guessing that I'm older than you. And I find that all my friends have either got, they've got children who are vegan or somebody who's, you know, mm -hmm. their, their son's girlfriend is vegan or their sister. And it, it's just so common that everybody is kind of networked into this, this new, mm -hmm. new way of understanding how we should eat. It's taken that time, hasn't it, to become so much more every day? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, th I think we have seen that, that change. It, it feels as though it's happened overnight, I think, to a lot of people, but it, it hasn't, you know. There have been people working away at this for generations. Um, so um, after I became vegetarian at 17, I think um, when I was 18, I spent some of my birthday money on joining the Vegetarian Society and um, I, I became a member at, at 18 because I really wanted to be part of 
part of a movement, a group of people who who wanted to wanted this thing to grow and wanted to share this thing with other people, and I wanted to support that work. Um, and um, you know, some some years later, I was actually you know fortunate enough to be employed to work at the Vegetarian Society. So I, I spent some years um, working there as um, in, in, in initially in campaigning, um, and then sort of more generally um, communications. And um, you know, I, I think that, you know being. You, you you become aware of the history of of, of the movement. Um, the Vegetarian Society in, in um, England was founded in 1847, for example. The Vegan Society that I work for now was um, founded in 1944, and it was a, a group of people who were a member of the members of the Vegetarian Society that founded the Vegan Society. So we have these these quite strong links. So these things go back. People often think that this whole movement must have started in the 1960s with a kind of um, with, with that kind of love and peace sort of movement that was the countercultural movement that was going on then but actually it's it, it's it goes back much further and there have pe been people doing exactly the work that I do now um, you know generations ago I remember um, reading one of the journals uh, one of the vegetarian society's journals in their library from 1912 where they talked about a vegetarian day so they were holding awareness days in 1912, um, you know, it, there's a very long history of doing exactly the, the same work that we've been doing. That's so wonderful to hear. I love that. So, um, tell me. Um, I mean, I am I am aware of the kind of the the sort of political and also you know religious uh, connections with vegetarianism. My my mother's aunt and uncle were pre-war socialists, and they were vegetarian. It was sort of you know very you call it fashionable, but it was part of the you know the the group with which they socialised and politicised with. Um, and I know that your studies, Sam, have taken you into the area of exploring the links with Christianity. So t tell us mm. a little about that and how you how you came to to find it was a sort of, uh, a, you know, mm -hmm. a rich, a rich vein to mine. Um, yeah, working for the Vegetarian Society, um, I, 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 when I started to work there, I think I'd just become become vegan, and I was fortunate to be in an environment where there were other people working there who were vegan, and they ran a cookery school, so there were people who were specialists on vegetarian cookery who could help me with vegan recipes. So I think I was very fortunate at that point in history when it was more difficult to be vegan and to be surrounded by other people that, that could support that journey uh, for me as a, as a new vegan. But um, I was also aware that um, we had loads of these bound volumes um, in, a, in what was then a corridor and um, I, I remember asking what are, what are those and they were the bound journals of the Vegetarian Society dating back to um, 1847 and um, I was told oh the society was founded by a group of um, a, a group of a Christian group in in the um, Salford area of, of Manchester and um, and I thought that was really interesting my first degree had been in religious studies and um, I thought it'd be interesting to find out more about them that really set me on a, a journey of of looking at um, that group, that group of people, they were they were um, called the Bible Christian Church, and the Salford Bible Christian Church grew out of another group, the Swedenborgian um, Jerusalem New Church, um, and they they were a, a vegetarian group. They were they were a very sort of mystically inspired group, um, but they they very much were Christians. They were pacifists. Um, they were vegetarian. They were uh, teetotal. Um, so not just temperate, as in not drinking spirits, but actually completely teetotal. Um, so th there was this whole sort of 
package of beliefs that, that went with them. When I decided I wanted to do an, um, an MA, I chose as my sort of um, dissertation to look at the Bible Christians and, and their influence on the, the vegetarian movement. And um, later my PhD grew out of that into a more generally looking at the relationship between Christianity and vegetarianism um, in the UK. So uh, it kind of expanded really from, from that one group to other groups that have, have had this similar interest in, in both Christianity and the vegetarian diet. That's utterly fascinating. And it, tell me, I mean, it was... Uh, vegetarianism, indeed, veganism, has been um, historically intertwined with faith in India for centuries. Mm. Has that had an influence on Christian thinking here? I mean, certainly that's that's where, when you talk about the links between religion and uh, vegetarian diet, that's naturally where you, you would think of it in terms of the, the religions that come from the East. And, um, you know, I think particularly religions that are linked to reincarnation, it's quite common that if you think there's a possibility that you might be reincarnated as a food animal, then you're much more likely to think differently about food animals. So that there is that connection as well. And I think that's where we, we traditionally find this this um, link between diet and and religion and not particularly in, in Christianity because of course you know famously there's you know um, uh, Peter's dream where 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 we're told that you know Christians it's not it's not forbidden that they can now eat all all animals unlike um, within the Jewish faith so that's that's what how we think about Christianity but there have been exceptions to that rule and I think that's um, they've they've come from um, a, you know a particular sort of um, a particular sort of route um, and one of one of those is is this sort of um, often there's a revelations that have been given to a founder of the group or they take a different interpretation of Christianity so they don't they don't necessarily follow follow the Bible but might have um, reinterpreted scriptures so there's there's usually something heterodox about their teachings in some way that that um, allows for for vegetarianism within it, but there are mainstream groups as well that have um, also accepted um, vegetarianism. Um, I'm thinking, you know, that there are there are groups within the mainstream mainstream denominations like Anglicanism and um, Catholicism of people who are concerned about animal welfare or you know vegetarian groups. Um, the Quakers, for example, about a third of Quakers would be um, vegetarian. Um, that, that's quite, you know, quite common. The Seventh Day Adventists, um, again, their founder Alan um, Alan G. White was very committed to to vegetarianism and a lot of her teachings. So it's quite a, an important element within Seventh Day Adventism, and you will often find that certainly institutionally, you know, if you go to a, a Seventh Day Adventist college, for example or a hospital they would always have a vegetarian diet available and nowadays often vegan food as well so, so there are there are some more mainstream examples um, but a lot of the Christian vegetarian groups were quite um, uh, quite small groups and we're often interpreting scripture differently um, the groups like the order of the golden age the order of the cross um, the order of the Danielites there are quite a number of these of these groups that, that had vegetarian teachings. That is so interesting. Tell me a little more about your role now um, at the Vegan Society, Sam. And I, I, how long have you been in that particular role? Uh, about four and a half years in, in, in this role as head of communications. Yes, and I mean, in that four years, I mean, the perception of veganism has, I would say, changed almost beyond recognition from, from my external perspective. Yes, I think, I, I suppose I... I Previously worked for the society um, in a freelance role, um, 
uh, from in about 2012 to 2014 um, and um, I, it was during that time that I really saw something happening that, that, that was changing. Um, historically, if veganism was mentioned at all in the mainstream media, it was usually in a, in a negative um, context. And I say that because there has been academic research as well looking at that very point, so examining all references um, to veganism and you know giving them a sentiment of whether they were positive or negative. And it certainly was the case that overwhelmingly references to, to veganism would be negative. For example, it might be a, a case of a, a baby that's died because the parents gave it this inappropriate vegan diet, those sorts of things, uh, maybe talking about militancy within veganism, those stories are where it would have been mentioned. Around about 2012 something seemed to happen in the zeitgeist that was coming over from, um, from the USA. Um, we had um, high profile sort of A-list celebrities who were who, you know, people who are seen as, you know, the, the attractive people, the glamorous people, the people with lots of money, uh, people who could afford their own personal chefs. And these people were choosing to, to be vegan. And you started to see stories filtering into the UK media as well, talking about figures like um, Jay-Z and Beyonce becoming vegan or at least following a vegan diet. Well, they kind of moved in and out of it. But um, those sorts of stories, and they weren't being produced in a negative way. It was, it was more... Um, more factual and, and nothing negative was being said about this diet. There was also a, a book by Mark Bittman, um, V Before Six, which was um, advocating, um, again a, an American author, advocating a vegan diet and vegan recipe book where you, during the day um, you would be vegan and then the diet wasn't vegan in the evening. So it was a predominantly, di predominantly plant-based diet, uh, not vegan in the sense that veganism is much more of a complete commitment but this idea of part-time veganism if we can use that term that was being reported as well and I think we were starting to see a more positive portrayal in the media of veganism and that's when it starts to be permitted society almost has to change its mind about it before people feel that this is something they can explore and you've then started to see people sharing more um, recipes on, on social media dishes that looked really beautiful, it became much more aspirational and I think that's when we started to see this change. You could feel that there was something happening where veganism had moved from its traditional position of being extreme. I, I remember as a vegetarian thinking that vegans were extreme, that it was taking vegetarianism to, to a, an extent that was unnecessary because I didn't understand why people were vegan at that point. I hadn't understood the, the welfare and animal rights issues behind it and that was how veganism was generally portrayed as something a bit extreme um, and something changed at that point you could see that it was now being portrayed as perhaps something that was more positive prior to that um, you know there were the characters um, I think things like um, Coronation Street was a good example uh, there was a character the, I think it was the nephew of Emily Nugent who was he was he was obviously based on the the figure of Swampy um, who was known in the media in terms of tree uh, saving trees and and those sorts of campaigns and he, she had this nephew come to live with her who was the very caricature of everything that veganism was held out to be you know somebody who was um very much um you know good-hearted and an eco-warrior but had this very strange diet it, it was an alternative lifestyle a counter-cultural image that was typical of how vegans would always have been portrayed suddenly you've got these a-listers um who are now being portrayed as vegans um, and there was around about 2013 maybe, there was um, a programme, the, the BBC did a programme, Radio 4 did a programme called The New Vegans, 
And that was the first time I'd really heard that expression used. And what they were looking at was the fact that there was this growth of this new group of vegans who weren't performing to that type. There were different sorts of vegans and they kind of explored that relationship. And that was where I thought there's something changing here. And it was probably the first time, I think, or almost the first time that that sort of programme had been, the society had been approached about that sort of programme. That's such a great account, Sam. It's all those strands coming together, as you say, one might say celebrity influencers, a popular soap opera, so many different forces coming together and normalising something which before had been seen as kind of niche and slightly, as you say, negative, maybe a bit threatening. I mean, I, I do remember when it's it's six years since um, my son became vegan and uh, he, he'd done the, the journey through vegetarianism mm -hmm. to veganism. And my mother-in-law, who was still alive then, was the most incredible cook. And she was absolutely fine when uh, her grandson was vegetarian. But when he became vegan, she was really nervous about cooking for him. I remember I felt really apprehensive, whereas now, I mean, I said mm. probably six days of the week I am vegan and then I might, mm. sorry, fall off, you know, fall off the wagon, um, you know, one day a week. But because I have all the ingredients in the house, I know that my balsamic vinegar is vegan. I know my sugar is vegan. It, it's just not an issue anymore. Whereas before, I think I just had this kind of fog of fear in my head of that I was going to kind of get it wrong or I couldn't create something mm. nice. But once you've gone through that barrier and you understand it, it, there's nothing frightening about it at all. But I think a lot of people do perceive it as a bit intimidating. Yes. And, and I think that there was, you know, um, there was definitely a period, I think, where if you were vegan, you, you were sort of seen as the kind of um, the dinner guests from hell. You know, what do I what do I feed these people? What do they eat? What's left to eat? That that's that's long gone. I think that feeling. I, I mean, I can I can certainly recall a time thinking that if I could be, if I was able to go into a coffee shop and order a cup of tea or coffee with uh, soya milk, that would be. A huge achievement and my life would be so much easier if that were possible rather than carrying around a, um, a plastic you know cup of, of um, soya milk in a plastic bag that would probably leak into the bag and smell dreadful forever and <laughs> um, you know it seems incredible now to when every chain would and, and most independent coffee shops might offer several different sorts of plant milks but that doesn't seem although it probably was a few decades ago it doesn't seem that long ago when that was a that was a hopeless dream that you could go somewhere and say can I have that with soya milk um, and now I could probably go into a coffee chain and choose from three different plant milks and more to the point the person behind me ordering the plant milk might not even be vegan they might just be somebody who says you know I really quite like oat milk with my coffee they're making mm -hmm. a, a positive choice because actually why choose from one why choose from one or two types of milk you know full fat or semi-skimmed or skimmed when you can choose from all these different milks that have mm -hmm much you know add flavor to your to your drink they're actually a new experience it seems to me that non-vegans are perhaps limiting themselves um, rather than vegans limiting themselves because we have so much more choice of, of plant milks no i i would agree with you there i'm a great oat milk aficionado especially british mm. oat milk so <laughs> i think it's good to have ones that haven't uh, come good choice the environment. <laughs> with lisa exactly now that was something i wanted to ask you sam so in your role are you able to unravel what the impulses behind more and more people embracing in veganism is it the morality argument is it climate emergency 
do you know where people are coming from? I think it's still it's still fairly e- equally split between um, people who are concerned about animal rights or animal welfare issues, um, people who are concerned um, about environmental issues, particularly amongst the um, younger age groups. I mean, veganism is a is a very young movement, so most the typical vegan will have become vegan within the last four years. They will be um, more likely to be to be female, much more likely to be female, quite likely to be under thirty five. Um, likely to be under 25 even so it's, it's a very youthful movement um, and the younger vegans are more likely to have been motivated um, by by environmental concerns I think um, although I wouldn't say that that's necessarily outstripping um, the concerns for animal rights or animal welfare but certainly younger people I think are more aware of these issues and it's more it's more relevant to them as well of course they're going to sadly feel the brunt of any decisions that we do or don't make now so it's understandable why they're much more committed to these issues but um yeah i I think it's still still split you know fairly evenly the the other area of course is human health there are lots of people that become vegan because they consider that it will be beneficial to their health perhaps they have family members who've who've suffered uh, particular illnesses that they feel feel that a vegan diet will help them to avoid um and, and you know I think that's that's quite a strong strand as well. No, I, I understand that. I, I spent um, 2020 in London um, caring for my mother, who was 90 um, and very fragile. And my community shrank from, you know, the kind of big world that we inhabit. Everybody's community shrank. But I was yeah. I was away from my husband for a year. My community was my mother, my brother and myself. And I did all the cooking, which was a pleasure and a relaxation mm. in a time of enormous stress and anxiety. And we certainly had a vegetarian diet and my mother had had digestive issues for, I'd say, 30 years. And I I think that's one of my proudest things is that they went, you know, she was really, she was well. And I I felt really happy that I could do that for her. So that that's quite a sort of... um, quite a silver lining in what seemed like yes. a very big cloud at the time. But I know this, um, you know, it's, it, there's so much to, positive to think about, but, you know, we are, we are chatting at a, at a time of great um, political turmoil and, mm. you know, it's hard not to be thinking with part of one's mind all the time about what's happening in Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is, is you know, one of the great food producers of the world, the grain basket of Europe. It produces 20 of the world's wheat. Is that something that you're realizing is going to impact the world of veganism? Do you think that maybe there'll be less animal feed in the world and therefore the price of meat is going to go up? Might it mean that more people embrace veganism from an economic point of view? I mean, is this something you've been mulling over and how it might impact your world? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's certainly um, it, it certainly comes it comes into play to some extent. Um, I think vegans have always been people who were quite aware of um, not just where meat comes from, but where their food comes from as well. So I, I think you're, you're more likely to come across vegans who are concerned about, as you said yourself, about whether the protein is is um, is, is British grown, uh, whether their veg is British grown. Often those are issues that I think vegans have often thought about um, because they do tend to be people who reflect on, on their ethical decisions generally. So there are quite a number of vegans who um, wouldn't, for example, consider um, palm oil or palm fats to be acceptable. Uh, they're aware of the impact that it has on on animal welfare. So even though the product itself isn't necessarily not suitable for vegans, they would avoid it. So I think there are people who are making you know those sorts of ethical decisions all the time. 
um, and it is something that, that you know that we reflect on in, in terms of, of grain supply then yes certainly most of the you know uh, one, one of the things you often hear is about you know the, the damage that you know soya does and that part of that problem is that vegans eat so much soya and um, which of course doesn't acknowledge the fact that most soya is grown to feed cattle uh, not necessarily in the UK but worldwide soya is generally being grown to feed cattle and I think you know we, we do produce an awful lot of food to feed to animals so that we can subsequently kill those animals in order to eat them and it would have been much more productive to have eaten plant-based in the first place you know we're cycling our food through other animals and that that whole thing once you start thinking about that process it doesn't really make very much sense and I think anyone who ponders it long enough would wonder why we do it why don't we just eat the food that the animals are eating instead of this this awful system where we breed and then destroy animals whilst feeding them other food that we also that also takes up land and water uh, which is quite a precious resource in order to to feed the animals how much that's going to this particular crisis is going to impact on our food i i don't and, the, and animal farming i don't know um certainly in the in the uk it, it probably isn't um you know it's probably not as much of an issue as it would be in in some countries in terms of the amount of food that we're um, feeding to animals rather than grazing for example there's a certain amount of grazing going on in the uk that that would probably um, make that not necessarily a crisis here. Very, very fascinating. Sam, I think sadly we've come to the end of our allotted time, but it's been so interesting to talk to you. I would love to talk to you for longer. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and your thoughts with us. And I would love to talk to you again in a, a little while and to see where this exciting vegan, shall I use the word, journey explosion is taking so many people. It's been my pleasure. It's been good to talk to you today. Thank you. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.